Hello everyone, it's June 11th, 2019. This week we're talking about the end of the Spitzer Telescope. The hope was to find someone who could take it off NASA's hands before the end of the year. So if anyone out there has a few million dollars with nothing to spend it on, give it some thought, alright? Okay, liftoff. And we've covered the tower. Welcome to episode 214 of the Little Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So last night I was up till midnight watching all five episodes of Chernobyl. Oh, oh yeah. Have you seen that? I'm getting ready to watch it, but I don't think I'm going to make it through even the first <laughs> episode because I get depressed very quickly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So <laughs> it's very hard to get through. Yeah. And that's exactly how I felt. And there came a point by like the fourth episode where I was up pretty late and I was like, I do not want to go to bed after having watched this. But I help it. <laughs> Great. You know, like you kind of get to that point. I actually, my, my own tragic story about that is that I watched the first three episodes and then uh, my partner, Kira, is the one who was paying for Hulu Plus to get the HBO shows. But now that Game of Thrones is over, she canceled it yesterday <laughs> without telling me. So I, I only watched three of the five, and I really want to watch the final two. It's a very good show. And, you know, the best part for me is that I now have an understanding of exactly what went wrong, because I never knew. I just knew mm -hmm. that there was, you know, a huge catastrophe, big meltdown, but I, I didn't know why. And I've never understood the details of the physics, not really so much the physics, but I guess more so like the engineering behind like yeah. nuclear mm -hmm. reactors and how they work. And so now I do. And uh, that's also in part thanks to Scott Manley, because he put out a video about the whole thing, too. Right. Um, so that that actually helps explain a few things. But um, it's very interesting. Yeah. So Pretty much comes down to gross mismanagement and then just a little design flaw, and that's all you need for mm -hmm. a huge disaster. Yeah, it's very depressing. I don't see how I could watch a show like that if it were like an ongoing thing. Right. It's kind of like The Walking Dead, which I eventually left because it was just too <laughs> grim. You know, I just couldn't keep watching. But yeah, this is just five episodes and it kind of has a happy-ish ending because, I mean, you know, it's a real-life event that happened and just as long as there were lessons learned, which there were. So I guess you kind of have to take the long view yeah. 20, 30 years later. Yeah, I was surprised at just how potentially disastrous it could have been. Like, I, I always thought, I didn't realize that there could have been, like, you know, continental ramifications. It seems that there were so many things that happened back then, especially during the 80s, that were kind of like that, where, oh, you know, like, we almost lost a continent or all of humanity, you know, but, yeah. like, thanks to this one person who made the right decision, we're still here today. Like, that actually happened, which is not something I like to think about too often, but I think it's also important to keep that in mind that we're kind of... Unfortunately, the resolution the to the Fermi paradox. Yeah, seems to be <laughs> how many close calls we've had in just 100 years, let alone mm -hmm. thinking about us thousands of years from now. Well, speaking of Fermi, let me take a hard left turn here. Did you guys read the latest Expanse book? What's it called? Um, I have not. Tiamat's Wrath. Um, so it, interestingly enough, in, this isn't a spoiler. It's like in the first couple of chapters, they're talking about all the different worlds and, uh, they say, you know, Fermi was, Fermi was wrong. Like <laughs> there's a <laughs> lot of life out here. Technically Fermi, I mean, the paradox is that he states that there should be a lot of life out there. Oh yeah. I guess we, you're right. Yeah, yeah. All we have are the, uh, you know, aside from UFO stories, we don't have the kind of smoking yeah. gun evidence for their existence yeah. and so so getting back on track moving on to this week in spaceflight history we got like five or six winners all right so the clue from last week was i know space food is bad but this would make me puke uh mm. and our winners this week are bill russum again uh, ben haller chubby turcosi jason freeson valentin frank and karen thompson this week in spaceflight history is the 16th of june 1963 it was the launch of vostok 6 with valentina tereshkova on board 
So uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, having to puke in a sec. But you know, early space flight was not fun, and uh, Vostok Six was no exception. This was a a really exceptionally difficult flight. So Valentin Frank mentioned that uh, Valentina Tereshkova hit her head while her vehicle was going vertical on the pad. And I couldn't find anybody else who said that. So Valentina, if you could tell me uh, where you found that, I'd, I'd appreciate it. But Valentina ended up vomiting on orbit. And Valentina is saying that that might actually be because of a head injury before the launch, which it's something that I'd never heard of, but that, that does sound pretty reasonable. Anyway, the, the real reason that she vomited isn't super clear. Valentina Tereshkova is not a very outspoken person. And, you know, she's, you know, a, a Soviet uh not a citizen what do they call themselves comrade a, a comrade uh, yeah uh-huh. but you don't say a soviet comrade so, but but she you know she grew up in soviet russia so her outlook on the world is very different than ours and so it's never been super clear what happened exactly uh, but she blamed it on the food she said that you know some of the food was okay but um she tried eating a piece of white bread and it was so bad that it made her puke and you know she panicked everybody on the ground and mm-hmm. from what i understand she actually like had to promise that she wasn't going to puke again which is like okay <laughs> great make somebody do mm-hmm. that that seems uh highly productive um but it, you know it may have been due to this head injury it may have been due to space sickness it might have just been due to the really rough conditions that you experience inside of a Vostok. So a bunch of things went wrong. They they gave her two pencils for her logbook and both of them broke. Uh, they packed her food and water and toothpaste, but no toothbrush. So she couldn't brush her teeth. Oh. Um the suit that she was wearing was not well fitted, um, and so it chafed really, really bad. And on top of that, the helmet didn't have enough room in it. So as you know, as all of the fluids in her body that normally settle down towards your feet in Earth gravity, as they started to rise up towards her head and make a more uniform pressure throughout her body, her head began to swell, and it started pressing on the inside of her helmet which, you know, was packed with, uh, you know, the Snoopy cap, like the communications equipment. And it started hurting so bad that she actually ended up crying, apparently. And she, you know, she was heard kind of singing to herself, trying to uh, get past the pain of just being in this very, very uncomfortable flight suit. And then, you know, if that's not stressful enough, uh, they botched the programming for the flight computer. And when she asked the vehicle to burn retrograde and go into a lower orbit, it actually burned prograde and put her into a higher orbit. This was one of the big secrets of the mission was that this happened. And they they had to radio up instructions on how to basically rebuild the reentry program to make sure it was going to work. They begged her not to talk about this. And and she didn't until somebody else in the space program mentioned that she's like, okay, well, if they're going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. And she kind of explained what happened. Mm. But, you know, Russia was very interested in in looking perfect. They didn't want anybody to know about any of their mistakes, um, which, you know, it's just basic uh competitiveness the less your competitor knows about your your progress the better but it went to the extent that she landed 
and you know a bunch of locals came out and they're like hey check it out it's a spacecraft they uh helped her get out of the vostok capsule and they you know fed her and took care of her well she had a giant bruise on her head and it it seems like this was likely to have been caused during uh reentry and landing um, but, you know, maybe that was something that had been there for a while and that was actually from before the launch. But in any event, the state didn't want anybody to know that she had been injured. So they um, put a bunch of makeup on this bruise, put her back in the capsule and, you know, reenacted uh, the recovery with actors, you know, running up and uh, knocking on the door and helping her out. So they could video it and release that video, you know, because wow. they, they didn't have video for the first time because the locals got there before the recovery team. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would love to go to space if my only option was a Vostok. I would probably say no. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I want to fly in this vehicle. Yeah, that sounded like hell. Well, and the same goes for a Mercury capsule. I wouldn't fly in a Mercury capsule. That <laughs> um, just, yeah, we we've talked about. Uh, yeah. you know, the claustrophobia and the cramping and all that. Just, uh, it's not my thing. It really is a capsule. I mean, it's like, um, yeah. it's more like a little cocoon. Like, that's how much room you have. So, hmm. and you're tumbling through space in that. It's yep. amazing that human beings can even do it. Yeah. We're capable of a lot of things as a species. There are some among us who are because I right. don't know if I can. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I'm not, I'm actually not claustrophobic, but I feel like in that situation, I might be. You know, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and being surrounded by nothing but vacuum that that just, yeah, it's an extra little psychological pressure. Anyway, so uh, I have a clue for next week if you guys are ready. Let's hear it. All right. Hear it. Next week in 1978, the clue is the boat that's a bulge. The boat mm-hmm. that's a bulge. Okay. All right. Well, I happen to know what this event is, and I still don't understand the clue. So <laughs> we'll see how many people get it. Next week in 1978, the boat that's a bulge. Bulge. So if you think you know what that's about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Spitzer has been announced for retirement and no one wants to take the reins and well, I suppose pay the money necessary to do so, huh? Yep. It's an aging space observatory, but it's still doing good science. And so uh but it's getting more and more difficult, as uh, I'll talk about in a bit, because not only is it as its functionality become limited compared to what it used to be able to do, but it's also drifting farther and farther from the Earth every day. So communicating with it is becoming more and more difficult. It's in a trailing orbit, right? So mm-hmm. it's sort of like falling behind. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to give a little bit of background about Spitzer. And so it's an infrared, like just to start from, you know, basics, right? It's an infrared space telescope. And it's named after Lyman Spitzer, who was kind of the first person who in the early days of rocketry was like, well, you know, if we put a telescope on a rocket, that telescope is going to be much you know, better than on the ground, either because, you know, something like infrared, which you can do some infrared from the ground, uh, not the longer wavelength infrared, but even the infrared that you can do from the ground is just better in space because you don't have the atmosphere above you blurring things out, which is also why we put them on airplanes too, right? So anyway, uh, in the 80s, they launched something called uh, IRAS, the Infrared 
uh, astronomy satellite, infrared astronomical satellite. And so uh, that thing operated for, you know, a very brief period of time, but managed to kind of scan the whole sky and do an all sky survey in infrared. And they were like, okay, this is great because now we're getting kind of data that we're, we've never really been able to do from the ground, like including all sky, because you can't do that from a single site on the ground, unless I guess you're at the equator. In any event, so then even back then in the 80s was the planning uh, needed for doing what ultimately became Spitzer. And so I, I always thought that's interesting is how many decades in advance, right, the development of these space missions end up mm -hmm. taking. And so originally it had the name CERTIF, which is a Space uh, Infrared Telescope Facility. And it's pretty cool in my old department. There was a assertive poster uh, on the wall in one of the uh, the infrared wing that we have there, and it's one of the four great observatories. So along with Hubble, Chandra, uh, and Compton, it's uh, kind of one of these really keystone NASA missions where they were just like, let's put basically the best thing that we can at that particular portion of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum and just get it into space and just do good science for a long time with that satellite. The only one that actually wasn't launched on shuttle, because it was the last to end up getting launched in 2003. And uh, the reason it wasn't on shuttles, because they, you know, you said before, David, it needed to go to uh, an Earth trailing orbit. So the Centaur upper stage uh, that was going to get it there after Challenger, they were not going to put Centaurs on shuttle anymore. And so uh, instead it launched on a Delta II uh, 7920 Heavy. Uh, and was actually the 300th Delta rocket launched. Hmm. I didn't know there were that many Delta II launches. I think I will. I think that's including uh, Delta ones, I guess, as well. Still, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, a little bit about the telescope itself. It's a uh, 0.85 meter or 2.8 feet mirror, which should give you a sense of just again how impressive James Webb is going to be at six and a half meters. I mean, that's kind of insane but still it could do imaging that you just couldn't do from the ground so uh, infrared uh, doesn't use ccds as their detectors uh like visible lights or you know uh, visible light detectors or you know the cameras in your cell phone but uh it's kind of like ccds so just you know light falls on it builds up or rather than building up a charge and then collecting it later like a ccd you just kind of measure the charge that you're getting from the stuff hitting the different pixels and so there were three instruments on there irac mips and irs and irac is the near infrared imager so the one that is still imaging to this day because infrared right is kind of longer wavelength infrared is thermal infrared and so if you want to be able to see something you need to cool down your electronics otherwise all you're going to be doing is measuring your electronics <laughs> so that's why they got to bathe these things in helium i mean we even do this for visible on the ground usually they'll just You'll, you know, you'll dump some liquid nitrogen in the doer that has your detector at the beginning of the night, observing night. But uh, in this case, right, you know, when you're in a Earth trailing orbit, you got to kind of give it all the coolant ahead of time. And so it was 95 gallons of liquid helium uh, in there to keep it nice and cool. And so from 2003 to 2009, it was cold enough to use all its instruments. And so these mid-infrared and longer-infrared uh, ones, MIPS and IRS, MIPS was also an imager, so, you know, taking nice pictures, and IRS was a spectrograph, so measuring infrared spectra of things. And, you know, it did, it's kind of hard to really express just how important this satellite was as far as the data that it gave back. Because, I don't know, you just would see this data popping up, usually not on its own, 
but like somebody who would do, you know, research on galaxies and they got X-ray measurements of galaxies. Well, they also, you know, have taken some MIPS data as well of them. And you kind of synergize those, you know, different data sets. Or, you know, somebody would be doing something hunting for planets using visible light. And then they'd also be like, oh, yeah, well, we also got a infrared spectrum from Spitzer. I mean, that's all of my experience with Spitzer. I never once, like, asked for the data or anything. But because it's, you know, NASA and it's public, uh, I would just be able to grab Spitzer data and use it to kind of uh, supplement whatever I was, you know, researching at the time. And so that's kind of one of the cool things about Spitzer is that it was sort of like always there and always kind of giving you, you know, good mm. stuff that you can use and play with. Uh, unfortunately, that 95 gallons of liquid helium uh, ran out by uh, 2009. And so it's now uh, at a, it's so hot now, it's uh, 30 degrees Kelvin, <laughs> which is too warm <laughs> for mid and far infrared, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so how warm is that in, I guess, either Celsius or Fahrenheit? Well, I guess Celsius would be what, negative two... 40 degrees yeah something like that yeah and then fahrenheit i don't even know what ungodly number that would be (laughs) (laughs) i just looked it up it's actually negative 405 degrees fahrenheit yeah right (laughs) yeah which is way too warm huh (laughs) yep (laughs) exactly yeah that's why and and that's why i mean mid and far infrared is it's really hard to do and so uh there was another satellite called herschel that specifically focused on kind of far infrared and that thing only lasted i don't know how long but maybe you know, six months to a year or so. Like, it wasn't a longer-term kind of space observatory. In any event, that's, uh, you know, Spitzer had been doing its thing. And so since 2009, 30 degrees Kelvin is still cool enough where you can basically use the, what, the the shortest wavelength uh, channels on the imager, IRAC. And so that is, you know, far enough away from thermal infrared that you can still kind of see things in the sky without just your electronics swamping you. And uh, since then, I mean, when we talk about the kind of discoveries that it's made, this is warm Spitzer even. So to give you, I mean, there's just too many things that it's done when I kind of looked uh, ahead of time. Because off the top of my head, I mean, I just knew that Spitzer would just always be showing up in people's papers and always showing up in research. But as far as like, what are the key, really iconic things that mm. Spitzer had done? Uh, aside from amazing images, you guys need to check out the uh, the MIPS image that it took of Andromeda. I don't know if you guys had seen this one. It's so cool. Because it's just basically t- tracing all the dust in the Andromeda galaxy. And so you just see these rings, individual rings of bright infrared emission coming out. But one of the things uh, planetary science uh, was uh, that Spitzer accomplished was the discovery of the Phoebe ring of Saturn, which is a ring that you just basically too faint and, you know, it kind of is a brighter infrared signal or it shines brighter in the infrared. And so it took Spitzer to discover it. And this one's neat because, right, the rings of Saturn, they line up with its equatorial plane, but this ring system because of the way it formed, lines up with the ecliptic. So it's actually tipped relative to Saturn. So it's almost like those kind of like sci-fi rings systems, you know, mm. where they're usually at 90 degrees to each other or something. Yeah. This isn't that dramatic, but it's still it's still tipped, which is cool. And, and for it to be able to do that, it's it's very, very far out from from Saturn. I mean, it's it's really way out there. So it's not like the other rings are interacting with it in a major way gravitationally. Right, right, right. Yeah, because I guess they would have to be concentric, right, in order to not bump into each other, or they would have to be like... Yeah, nested like that, yeah. Yeah. And my favorite discovery of it is the TRAPPIST-1 system. Are you guys familiar mm-hmm. with this? 
this is the one with a ton of planets. I remember hearing all about it, but I get I, there's so many exoplanets and I guess whole systems right, that right. I get them all confused. Exactly. I can't, I can't keep track of that either. This is the one that has a ton of planets that are crammed in a very small space, essentially. It's the Kerbal Space Program galaxy or uh, solar system. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, this one is, it, it. the seven planets are crammed so closely to their host star that I remember reading, like, after the Discovery uh, paper was released, um, that you would be able to see surface features from the adjacent planets, kind of like how we can see that the moon has lighter and darker patches. Wow. Which, if you could just imagine how cool that would be. That would make me think that, like, I mean, I don't know enough to know if this is a crazy thought to have, but I would think that that would make the orbits very unstable. Like, how could you have a system like that, you know? Like, if they're that close together? Yeah, so so basically, they're, they're probably, um, there, there's a way for systems like that to be unstable, but in this case, they can get into orbital resonances and actually end up more stable than ever and so yeah um, that's how yeah it's a resonance thing isn't it yeah i, I i'm i'm not positive about it but i'm pretty sure if you've got this many crammed in there that there's probably it, yeah. some serious re uh, resonances between them yeah i mean the trappist one system is like twice the size of the jupiter system and it has full-blown planets yeah it, it's definitely uh, they're definitely resonantly locked with each other. And so, and, and right, as far as Spitzer's concerned, this was, well, actually, as far as the system itself was concerned, astronomers are beer snobs. And so the fact that this was a a Belgian group, they named their telescope Trappist after the Trappist beer. And so it's like the least surprising <laughs> acronym to imagine when it comes to astronomers. Just to kind of, I guess, wrap up to actually talk about uh, Spitzer or what the actual news story is, is that five of those planets were discovered with Spitzer and another telescope while it was still in this extended warm mode uh, where it, you know, was at 30 Kelvin and couldn't uh, use its longer wavelength uh, channels. And so NASA was looking for outside funding because it just, with all the different things that it wants to do, it kind of couldn't justify continuing to fund Spitzer beyond, I guess, next January. And so it was a couple of years ago in 2017 that it put out calls for funding. Two organizations made proposals, but the funding fell through. And NASA had done this before. Galax, which was a uh, uh, an ultraviolet uh, space observatory, got funding from Caltech, for example. I don't know what those two organizations are. It might not be made public who they were, but the upshot is is that you know that was kind of a last ditch effort to get someone from the private sector to still fund the telescope. But with that not happening, they've officially kind of picked the time and date, which is going to be in January of next year, and that'll be the end of uh, Spitzer after you know 16 years. Mm -hmm. And so I to kind of really I guess give an idea of. It's accomplishments because, again, like there's not only has it just been a workhorse of infrared astronomy for everybody, but it's also participated in a number of very exciting kind of key get you on the cover of Nature magazine discoveries. But JWST really is Spitzer's successor, not Hubble's, because that's an infrared space telescope that'll be operating kind of the way that Spitzer has. It's a shame. The idea was hopefully to keep... Uh, well, the idea was to have Spitzer and JWST running at the same time, so maybe Spitzer could have found targets for JWST to do follow-up on or, you know, worked with calibrating JWST's detectors. But unfortunately, now we're going to have a gap where there might be a year or, you know, JWST gets delayed even more, multiple years. 
where we wouldn't have any uh, infrared in the sky giving us that data. So At least it had a good life, right? Because it went well beyond its expected operational life. So that's a yeah. good thing, right? They definitely uh, couldn't complain about how, uh, how much science they got out of Spitzer. Short and sweet time. Just got three. What's the first one, Ben? All right. ISS wants to go commercial. NASA has announced that it will be seeking increased commercial use of the International Space Station. The goal is to encourage commercial use while building up commercial facilities that may one day succeed the station. The new stipulations will allow two private astronauts per year for no more than 30 days at a price of $35,000 per day. NASA also plans to give commercial companies access to a docking port on the Harmony module. The long-term objective will be to make the ISS a fully commercial station, of which NASA is one customer. Uh, Next, NASA tries new strategy for stuck Martian instrument. One of the two primary instruments on board NASA's InSight lander is the HPQ heat probe, which consists of a self-hammering mole designed to burrow five meters below the Martian surface to measure the planet's heat gradient. However, since February, the mole has been stuck at a depth of 30 centimeters, likely due to a lack of friction with the surrounding soil that keeps the mole's recoil in check. While troubleshooting over the past three months hasn't solved the problem, mission engineers will now try removing the probe's support structure to get a better view of the situation. And lastly, China carries out a successful sea launch. This past Wednesday, a Long March 11 rocket lifted off from a mobile platform in the Yellow Sea. The four-stage rocket carried seven satellites into a 600-kilometer orbit. This was the first launch from an ocean-based platform since the demise of the company Sea Launch in 2014. This new capability will allow for more efficient launches closer to the equator, as well as avoid launching from China's inland launch centers, which put the local population at risk from falling debris and spent stages. So maybe they'll divert to the sea from this point forward. I don't know. That'll be nice. All right. No questions, comments, or corrections this week. So we just have one upcoming spaceflight event. And Dennis, you have a nice little breakdown of what's coming up. Yeah, just highlighting what's going to be launching on June 12th from a Falcon 9 Block 5. And so it's going to be the Radarsat Constellation mission. Um, So this is a uh, Canadian constellation uh, replacing earlier versions, Radarsat 1 and 2, which go all the way back to 1995. And essentially, it's just kind of monitoring Canada and the space around it, right? The North Atlantic and Pacific and the Arctic. The key things it's focusing on are maritime surveillance. So like, what is the ice doing in the Arctic? You know, obviously, if you're a boat, you want (laughs) to, sorry, if you're a ship, you want to keep track of that. Uh, Disaster management. So if there's any flooding or windstorms or earthquake prone areas that they can kind of monitor that, as well as just general ecosystem monitoring. And so this launch uh, will be taking place at 1417 UTC on June 12th, launching out of Space Complex 4E at Vandenberg. So nice little West Coast launch. And it's an instantaneous launch window. Polar launches tend to be. That makes so much sense, but I never put two and two together. <laughs> Alrighty, so that's your upcoming spaceflight event. So that brings us to the end of the show. So let's deorbit, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you, $5 and up Patreon supporters, for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Thank you to ATP Tour Fan for leaving us a review on iTunes. Or you can visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital Podcasts 
podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.